Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Welcome to Women on the Line, one of Community Radio's national women's current affairs programs. The show is produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcasted nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Tanhang Fan. Women on the Line acknowledges this program is produced and presented on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge elders past, present and becoming, as well as the owners of the land you are hearing us from. On today's Women on the Line, we head to the Bay Area in California and Hong Kong to hear from two artists chat about zines, DIY culture, and making art in their respective hometowns. Multidisciplinary artist and curator Renee Moore chats with us about their art practice, DIY culture, their teaching philosophy, and zines. Later in the show, we hear from Elaine who chats to us about display distribute, hand-to-hand courier services, zines, and print culture in Hong Kong. First, we hear from Renee. I'm an artist slash curator person living um, out of and working out of uh, California. I'm based out in San Francisco. Um, I've been curating and kind of working, I guess, professionally as an artist for the past two and a half years, but have been creating ever since I was a very young person. Um, and I'm also a graduate student currently studying in ethnic studies. It's so amazing to have you on Women on the Line. I've been um, following your work just for the last few months and um, just been look- looking at your website. And yeah, you've definitely done a lot of incredible work that I'm excited to talk about. And I'm sure we won't be able to cover it all today, but hopefully we can touch on some of um, some of the highlights or some of the things you've been working on recently. I noticed that you work across a range of mediums, and um, could you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm glad you asked that, um, because I often feel like artists or artists that have more of like an institutionalized and formal background tend to kind of have one type of medium they work with and master it. But um, I actually didn't receive any formal training in the arts, and I chose to work across a different uh, means for a number of reasons. One being that I've always loved learning about different things and being self-taught, I think, gives me a lot of room for exploration. And um, But also, I think that as someone who hasn't had this formal training and comes from more of like a, a DIY and alternative background, it gives me um, that platform to and that drive to want to continue to learn about the different practices and the different types of enriching communities that come with them. Um, and I think I've been really privileged um, to be able to immerse myself in different mediums. And I also just don't believe in being someone that, you know, has to master one type of discipline and withholds all this information. I've never really been someone that desires to do something like that. As I've become, you know, more immersed in this world, in this world of professionalism, quote unquote, um, I've realized too that it becomes kind of this business where you're marketing yourself and you're becoming this like identity where everything becomes about transactions. And that also for me waters down the reasons why I create. Um, and it takes a lot of away from the ability for me to be an expressive person. Um, 
so I, I feel really fortunate that I have different communities that are willing to share their knowledge with me and where we can actually build off each other. And that's why I continue to work across these different mediums. Amazing. So I'd love to hear more about this uh, DIY culture that, you know, that you're very much influenced by. You said you you started making art from a very early age. And I read that you were one of the co-founders of the first um, Bay Area Queer Zine Festival. Yeah, that's correct. Um, So I grew up in a small town um, called Fresno in California, um, which is kind of in the middle or what people would say is the armpit of California. Um, And so in this rural, it's a more like rural slash agricultural area where not a lot's happening, but um, the DIY community was kind of thriving. And so Mm. as a young person, this was kind of like my outlet or a space for me to meet other people, to also learn about different creative platforms. Um, And to also just have the drive and the autonomy to do so, um, I think these communities really encourage that and to not depend on other types of institutional structures to provide the validity for that. Um, And so when um, me and the other co-organizers for the Bayer Cuisine first came together, we basically just felt that there was a lack of representation for queer zine and self-publishing artists and that there needed to be a platform for this. And um, so when we came together to create this event, it was mainly out of the fact that there's this lack of representation. But I think going beyond representation too, um, it was the way for us to really talk about the, the larger issues that exist within the DIY communities and within the artist community, the, the greater artist community in general. How did Fresno and San Francisco influence your art practice and your politics? So when I moved out of Fresno, I was 20. I was about 20 years old. And I had actually moved to San Diego and lived there for about three years. Um, And I lived in in a place called La Jolla in San Diego. And that place was kind of where I began to become more politicized Mm. um, and began to think a lot about things in a more like racial context and um, also started thinking a lot about gender and sexuality and so forth. And a lot of those experiences and a lot of the people that I met there and the knowledge that I gained from um, my mentors and so forth kind of helped me to inform the work that I do currently in the Bay Area and to stay committed to the communities that um, I represent. And my experiences in Fresno, um, just growing up in a small town, um, with a um, very distinct uh, racial disparity in Fresno also really contributed to my politics and my work today. Mm-hmm. And in the Bay Area, I think the political energy from people, too, have really influenced the art that I continue to make. DIY is a big part of your teaching philosophy as well. I was reading about the three pillars that you have. Could you please tell us about the three pillars and you know why those why you chose to go with those um, models? I suppose I decided to divide it up this way, kind of just to make it integral to. I wanted to incorporate both my background in ethnic studies and the theory that I've learned academically, but also to kind of ground it in this more like do-it-yourself work and like the autonomy that comes in kind of depending on you and your community versus on the institution. Um, and and um, so that's why in my three pillars, I have community responsiveness, 
um, which comprises of a relevant and accessible education and do it yourself, which I've kind of already gone over. Um, and then the third pillar is bravery and um, having the bravery and courage to kind of take it upon yourself and take it upon your community to take these pedagogical risks in your education. Um, and also to question, constantly question the institutions that you're in and the types of structures that are delivering a certain type of knowledge to the general public. Um, and so that's kind of where I was going with the three pillars. Um, and I feel like they coincide with my artwork um, just the same as well, um, is that the work needs to be in a way um, accessible to the community it needs to resonate some type of experience as much as I'm, you know, I can easily say as an artist, I'm making this for myself. I, I always feel that a piece of what I'm making it has been influenced by my surroundings, by my experiences, and that it also needs to resonate with other people as well. Um, mm. And it takes a lot of energy from someone to be able to kind of critique that and challenge the systems that are in place. For sure, yeah. And how has the response been to um, you teaching with this model from your students? Um, so, so I've taught a number of workshops on self-publishing, and I've also taught uh, courses where they're a bit more, I guess, liberal or left-leaning in structure already. And so I've been pretty privileged to kind of be in an institution and in a community that is willing to embrace those ideas and embrace kind of a new radical model in learning. Um, and so I think that's why I always feel like I'm kind of in a bubble. I know that anywhere else these structures are kind of um, unheard of or wouldn't be or would be too radical of models to go by. Um, and so I think they've been well received. Um, I think other people have questioned whether, you know, things like do-it-yourself kind of um, – also fosters more of like a perception of individualism, which is not what I was trying to say in my work, is that I think that in doing itself, it means that you have our, the collective power of you and your community to divest from institutional validation and to take alternative approaches um, into your own learning process. Women on the Line. On Community Radio Around Australia, you're listening to artist and curator Renee Moore chat to us about their art practice, DIY culture and zines. Stay tuned to hear more from Renee. Renee, you do a lot of work with paper from zine making to your recent art piece, Ephemeral Intimacies. Um, when I looked at Ephemeral Intimacies, I saw how like tactile it was but also very intimate could you please tell us about um this piece of work and more about the thinking behind it i think and anything that i've done has always been very tactile um and that's so the reason why i chose paper for this particular piece is that um this paper is actually used for ceremonial purposes it's a it's called mong spirit paper or i guess in western terms known as Joss paper. Um, and so I just I decided to use this uh, material because it was so familiar to me and resonated um, with my youth and childhood and also just growing up with a number of women in my family, um, with my grandma, my mom, and my three older sisters. And um, I can recall us just like folding these pieces of spirit paper into boats 
um, which actually are supposed to resemble gold bars. And the memory of kind of folding and just the discussions that took place um, with my with the other women in my family um, when we would do this were are something that are really special to me. And so when my grandmother passed away two years ago, I decided that I wanted to make this piece in dedication to her um, because the paper actually, when you fold it, um, they get burned as a way to honor our ancestors. Mm. Um, and so the structure or the sculpture that I made, um, it actually, after I, I took pictures of it and documented everything and it went up for show, um, my family and I actually burned it together wow. um, oh my in memory gosh. of my grandmother. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so it was a really like special moment to have this piece because it also taught me a lot about how objects and materialism is also kind of um temporary um Mm. and so working with the temporality of these materials um really helped to also i think in a way made the the piece more special because it was more about the feeling and and the feelings of memory that um come from the process of of folding and of and of talking with your family and of of burning it together Mm. yeah that's that's super special Oh, that gives me like the shivers just hearing that. Um, yeah, how that sounds really amazing. <laughs> so I just get, I guess like to end to wrap up. I just wanted to ask like what you're working on now and um, what's coming up for you. Yeah, well, I'm working on quite a few things. Um, I am focused more on my curatorial practice. I am a, I have a residency right now at a local. Um, culture and arts institution. Um, they're called Soma Arts here in San Francisco. And um, so I'm working on this year-long show that is going to be up um, this November. Um, and I'm also working on print work right now. Um, it's what's most accessible to me at the moment. Um, and I'm hoping to kind of become more skilled at just designing with prints in general and, and also just meeting other people that are involved in printmaking I didn't realize how vast the community was until I moved here. And so it's really beautiful to kind of just like be able to share in that skill set with other people. Women on the Line. You just heard from artist and curator Renee Moore chat to us about DIY culture, their multidisciplinary art practice, zines and more. Up next, we hear from Elaine, who is part of Display Distribute in Hong Kong. I'm your host, Tan Hang Pham, and you're listening to Women on the Line. Stay tuned to hear from Elaine. I am currently based in Hong Kong and working with a, a sort of collective slash research inquiry called Display Distribute, um, which kind of has a roving cast of participants. Uh, but the main project that I've been involved with for the past couple of years involves independent publishing, um, both for producing our own uh, publications, but also uh, we've tried to set up a kind of mini infrastructure for distributing uh, publications uh, from mostly from Asia and Southeast Asia. Amazing. Welcome to Women on the Line. So I found uh, you through Light Logistics. Could you please tell us, or maybe um, we can start with the broader umbrella of what Display Distribute is all about? Uh, Display Distribute basically started in 2013 
as a kind of, uh, mostly actually as a, a documentary project. Uh, we basically were observing the kind of interactions of a, that were occurring in a particular shop uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, and it, they're kind of known all over the world as basically pop-up shops. But there's a really interesting model in Hong Kong where uh, the real estate uh the, the landlord will rent out a space by the day prior to it being leased long term. And all you do is you check a website, you can see all the locations available, and you call the number and request what day you, you'd like to have it, you transfer money, and you go there yourself. You don't actually even have to see anybody. So it's a bit, it's a bit impersonal. Um, but it allows then for all of these kind of great interactions to occur at the level of people renting it to basically sell a lot of the times cheap goods that they've gotten from across the border and things sort of semi-legal sort of. Yeah, <laughs> right. I remember you um, just a little bit before you, you used the term grey economies. Um, mm-hmm. Could you explain what that is to listeners? It's basically, yeah, grey meaning somewhere in a in a paralegal kind of sense where it's uh, a lot of times there are goods that may be surplus goods that have been kind of uh, taken from the factories and don't necessarily, uh, uh, they're not sold uh, in a proper sense in in the sense that they've been properly taxed or uh, come across the border legally, but they're not necessarily, of course, illegal uh, Mm. because they're, they're basically coming out of the, the interactions of individuals just selling overstock. And can you tell me how Light Logistics falls into Display Distribute? So Light Logistics, uh, we kind of developed as a mini lo-fi infrastructure for transporting publications. And um, this is somehow both inspired by this kind of movement of goods that we're seeing in the Pearl River Delta region, um, but also then uh, coming out of my experience of having done self-publishing for many years, I realized that, uh, especially when you when you live in China, um, it's not so difficult to produce a publication, or for for example, for zines, it's, it's something cheap, it's low cost, and if you have an interest in something you want to say, it's not so difficult to produce it, but the hard part is always how to get these publications to readers and how to share them um, or even to consider shipping if you want to bring your your publications abroad. Uh, And so uh, what we wanted to do then was to set up this distribution network among like-minded publishers uh, in Asia and Southeast Asia as a way to uh, support this kind of transport, but also then to encouraged through these mini encounters, different ways of uh, communicating about the about the publications or kind of creating other kinds of dialogues around these publications and the people who are involved with them. It would be really interesting to know more about, I guess, the art and the zine community there in Hong Kong. Could you please tell us a little bit about that? I've been doing some research actually quite recently about zine cultures in, in Asia. And I think it might be safe to say that there's been a huge resurgence over the last years in independent publishing in general, um, maybe kind of along the lines of this, uh, the popping up of 
art book fairs that we see in a lot of cities around the world. Uh, and I don't know if it's necessarily that people are still searching for alternatives or getting sort of overwhelmed by the saturation of digital media, but print media somehow still has its own kind of niche. Um, and I would say that especially in Hong Kong and China, people tend actually to stray away from the politics or I think there's a bit of wariness uh, towards addressing politics directly. So I guess these kind of, um, for example, punk political connotations of zines that you might see in the West um, are not necessarily the case anymore here. Um, there's a lot of uh, artists who are doing uh, kind of self-expression or these very personal type scenes. Mm. Um, and because, of course, production, the relationships to production are different. People, uh, they're, they're becoming a lot fancier in a lot mm. of ways. Um, and I would say I have a, a bit of critique towards certain commercializations of this kind of print culture. Um, but on the other hand, I think this possibility for, for anyone and for a lot of people who were not exposed to this before to maybe consider that possibility of making a publication themselves, I, th I think that's definitely positive. So, When I was in Vietnam a couple of years ago, I remember bringing over my zines, Min, and um, because I was showcasing it at um, the Hanoi Queer Forever Festival, my friend asked me specifically to to make sure I wrap all the zines up in paper so it just looks like it doesn't look like anything like it's I think because they were worried it might get confiscated even though it doesn't have any ex like super explicit content that I believe but I think they were quite worried because it has queer content that it might get confiscated and so and similarly another story was a friend of mine started a zine called Vanguard which is a like a queer Vietnamese diasporic literary zine that's based out of Saigon in um, Vietnam and at their first launch for their zine they they decided to because the front cover was actually like artworks of like testicles and so they decided to cover it in foil so that anyone who came um, if they were government officials or anything like that then they wouldn't really think twice about what was being passed around and I just found that very interesting and Vanguard itself is it's become such a important part of the queer community in Vietnam because it's so accessible the the materials there are very cheap in Asia as you would know so it's easy to produce a zine and easy to print in color it's easy to find all kinds of paper so it kind of became like a a growing I guess literary form for people who didn't have access to it before to take part in mm -hmm. and I thought that was really amazing in lots of ways because it it does kind of create this bigger sense of community whether it's political or not yeah I there was a, we learned about actually even as early as in the 80s there were LGBT zines being produced in in Indonesia and in Yogyakarta specifically mm. and and this I found really fascinating because I didn't really hear of something similar at that early stage um, in other countries and um, the people that we were talking with there uh, talked a lot about how yeah the zine and I think this is something that's really crucial about zine culture is that it produces a kind of safe space um, for people uh, especially at that time for LGBT people to to share and exchange information 
on something that is for sure not going to be exposed by mainstream media. When we, I think we, we exchanged uh, this text that I think I sent you a, a week or so ago, and in this article uh, by this, I think she's a cultural studies researcher mm -hmm. uh, in the U.S., and she writes a lot also about how, especially for the feminist zine scene in the U.S., um, they see the print culture as a, yeah, again, as a safe space because it allows for um, a kind of freedom and anonymity that you can't get anymore even online because everything can be sort of tracked and people are a lot more cruel, I would say, in, in the, that kind of publicness of the internet. Yes, <laughs> um, that's true. That, that um, people who are working with zines and exchanging zines among each other, it's, it's a lot more free and supportive and nurturing, I would say. Mm. Elaine, I'd love to hear more about the research that you're doing. Are you doing research on zine culture in Hong Kong specifically? It's a bit more broad. We're, we just started, actually, uh, and we are trying to somehow look at alternative trajectories or genealogies of, of zine culture in Asia and Southeast Asia. So um, it's really, again, because we just started, we're just trying to crack the surface to mm. see what kind of uh, developments there have been or like how uh, certain trends have migrated to Asia Pacific region and uh, basically started by interviewing um, kind of zine practitioners or independent publishers that we know in, in several different countries. Mm. Um, and of course, a lot of it does come originally from the migration of punk culture, which is of course like a worldwide phenomenon. And, mm. and that's where you see a lot of the earliest zines, for example, in Philippines and Japan and Indonesia, where punk culture is quite strong. Mm. Um, but again, like how I mentioned before, the, it's somehow transformed in a lot of ways. Uh, if you look at this kind of proliferation of, of print culture that's happening now, which is completely different from this sort of cheap lo-fi black and white photocopies that you would, might associate zines originally with. Um, and so we were kind of interested to find out how these changes have occurred or, or what kind of alternative meanings and alternative interpretations and developments we can see that are specific to these regions. What's in store for Display Distribute and Light Logistics? Like, Do you have any, any plans for it? I mean, the Light Logistics project is somehow an ongoing uh, project. Of course, it's related to this sort of ongoing movement of the books, and it's basically that we just try to, to keep it moving uh, to a certain degree. Uh, of course, there would be a lot of, of kind of improvements that we would like to, to make, for example, to the website and these kind of things. But, of course, time and money always slow those things down. Um, but in addition to that, I think we uh, we had started last year with experimenting with uh, yeah participating in book fairs and seeing how that, that would work. Uh, and hopefully this year we will... Uh, attend a couple more, uh, maybe in Bangkok, and, and maybe if we can get that far to Toronto. You just heard from Elaine chat to us about display distribute and print culture in Hong Kong. Women on the Line is one of Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs Program. It's produced and presented by a range of women broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcasted nationally on the Community Radio Network. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, 
send us an email at womenontheline at gmail.com. You can download our programs from our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash womenontheline. And don't forget you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. The theme music for our show is Slideshow at Free University by La Tigra, and we also heard Heft by Japanese Breakfast. Thanks for listening to Women on the Line. I've been your host, Tan Hung Pham, and tune in again next time.